Good evening. Good evening. Welcome to this live session of The Sword and the Trowel. The Sword and the Trowel is a podcast of Founders Ministries, and Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. I'm Graham Gundon. I'm Tom Askell. And this evening, we have a wonderful privilege to be able to sit down with Allie Beth Stuckey and have a conversation with her. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. wait. <laughs> I didn't get that kind of applause. You didn't get that kind of applause. So, uh, Allie, just take it away, I guess. Uh, yeah, okay. Here I am. Welcome to Relatable. Oh, I mean, sorry. <laughs> Forgot. It's not my podcast. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we've looked forward to this and appreciate your willingness to be here. And uh, Graham and... I were talking, or actually Graham was talking to Allie, and I was listening about some possible things we could talk about, and they were using words that I've never heard before, so you're probably going to have to start that. Well, one of the words was cosplay. Cosplay. Yeah. Um, how, many know, how many of you know what cosplay is? How many of you don't know what cosplay is? Look, there's about almost half no, of us, so no, I feel okay. No. All right, go ahead. Uh, cosplay. And the other word was trad wife. Trad wife. Yeah, trad wife. Which sounds like a made-up word. It's not. Um, maybe, Allie, you could define trad wife for us. Okay, sure. Well, this takes a lot of setup. So the context of this was talking about the trend of being a trad wife or having a trad life on social media, which is really less about traditional or biblical values and a lot more about aesthetics. And obviously, there's nothing wrong with living on a farm and making your own sourdough and homesteading and all of those wonderful things. But because this has become a trend on TikTok and a trend on social media, unfortunately, some people have made the mistake of conflating that so-called trad life and being a trad wife with being a biblical wife or a biblical mom or having a biblical life uh, while homesteading and all of that is wonderful. It's great. Motherhood for the Christian is obviously much more than a social media trend. It's not just something that you cosplay, put a costume on and play and pretend. Um, it's not just uh, an aesthetic. It is a calling by God. And there are biblical standards, of course, that women are called to, uh, but it is uh, they're not standards that are set by social media. They're not standards that are set by a TikTok trend. They're not standards set by whatever social media influencer you follow that says, in order to be a good mom, you have to make your own sourdough. That's a wonderful thing, but you can be a, a great and biblical wife and mom without doing some of those things, which is good news for me because I like to buy my sourdough. <laughs> well, Allie, one of the reasons we wanted to uh, talk to you is because of the way the Lord has positioned you and used you to speak into certain areas uh, culturally, politically, and to do so with a, a good biblical uh, thoughtfulness about you, and to do so as a woman who's not embarrassed by being a woman or not frustrated that you're not a man or is trying to push some kind of agenda that would suggest there's no difference between men and women. And so I think it's fascinating how you and your husband, Timothy, have thought through this and worked this out and figured out, okay, you know, this is what our lives are like, and this is how we fulfill the callings God's given to us. And uh, I have a husband, and he has a wife, and we are very much committed to what the Bible says about biblical uh, marriage and family. So tell us about how you've navigated some of those waters. 
Wow, that's a that's a that's a lot to answer, and a, and a lot. It's been a lot to. Well, they clapped to for you, so I figured that you're the one yes. that would have all the answers that's, on this. That's totally fine. No, I think this is a great question, and it's something that a lot of people are curious about. Um, I started doing what I do uh, when we first got married. So back in 2015, we were living in. Athens, Georgia, uh, and I decided that I wanted to talk to the students in the area about why they should be voting in the election 2015-2016. I had just graduated from college in 2014. I felt like I could relate to these young people in college. I was actually working in PR full-time then, but I've always loved public speaking. I've always loved communicating. In one form or another, I have been doing this since I was a child. So I had this desire and had this pull to talk to young people about why the culture wars, why elections, why politics matter. And so I actually started in um, sorority houses and I would reach out to the chapter presidents and say, could I please talk to you and give you my presentation about why y'all should be voting in the elections? And that's really kind of how it started. And this was a part-time thing. It was really just a hobby that Timothy was always incredibly supportive of. It certainly wasn't something that I ever intended to do uh, full-time or long-term, but of course it it turned into that. And it's been different in different seasons of my life. There was a season of my life before we had kids when work looked very different than it does now. Um, but as a wife and a mom, that is my first and in, in my highest calling underneath just being a Christian. Um, and so uh, my responsibilities look different than they did before, but uh, the Lord has been very gracious in providing ways and providing opportunities for my husband and I to um, to both of us in one way or another try to influence the culture and influence the church into navigating the culture wars in a way that is biblical, in a way that is courageous, while still allowing me to prioritize being a wife and a mom and spending most of my hours dedicated to that. It's really not that my life or really anyone's life um, as a Christian is in these neat compartments, but really that they all kind of fit together. It's a lot of traveling with family. It's a lot of doing things at home. It is a lot of leaning on each other. And my husband has been such a good and a strong leader through all of this. And every decision that we make, really everything that I even say is something that we talk about beforehand and something that is just so woven into every part of our lives, really. Um, and so I don't really know if that answers the question because it's not some neat method that we have come up with to say, okay, this is exactly how we are going to categorize the different parts of our lives. But my husband and I from day one have been working on this together and brought along our kids with us. And so, yeah, we just try to do the next right thing in faith with excellence and for the glory of God. That's kind of been our motto. Um, yeah. And so part of that is coming to Florida and talking to you guys with a newborn. And um, that's a lot of what the past few years of our lives has looked like. 
you know, I've, uh, I've long been impressed that there's a, when you speak on your podcast and do public things, you just seem so grounded. And I do think that maybe part of the reason for that, some of the secret sauce, if you will, is probably your desire to pursue uh, what the Bible says that we ought to pursue in biblical masculinity and biblical femininity and the, the fact that you and your husband are partners in this together. There's a lot of debates. There's a lot of things happening on social media, and some of those things you weigh in on. But there's a, a reasonableness there that I think is so refreshing and so helpful. I know a lot of women listen to your podcasts and follow you on social media, but even for the men, it's just encouraging to be able to to see that and that that desire there. Well, I appreciate that a lot. My husband is very good at helping me just. Helping me pick my battles, as you guys know, on social media, it can be tempting to engage in every battle and respond to every stupid tweet that you see and try to correct people, you know, who have wrong opinions. They need to know. Um, <laughs> but my husband is really, really good at helping me discern how my time is best spent and how to prioritize which battles I need to wade into because I don't need to wade into every battle and how I respond and which person I respond to, not in like a managerial sense, but just in helping me think through those things. And I've certainly, I don't think any of us could say that we've navigated social media perfectly in all of our political conversations. I certainly have not, um, but he does help me Tr or I, I try to be helped in responding as graciously and um, as reasonably as as I can. So I'm I'm just so I'm just so thankful that we have enmeshed our lives in such a way that we do work on those things together, and that I do have someone to rely on who's always going to steer me in in the wisest direction that he can. Amen. You know, I think you probably manage social media perfectly. I'm pretty good at it. Yeah, Graham got off social media, so... Uh, there I'm, you go. That's the only way. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I'm, I'm often jealous of you, you know, for uh, the things that you don't have to put up with on social media, and it's always kind of a, a question in my mind, you know, is this worth it or not? Um, I've tried to use it as a one-way communication tool and not engage uh, too much, but I see... It's a target-rich environment for just going after stupidity. I mean, it's yeah. just all over the place. And um, seeing the way you've na navigated that, but then seeing the way some people have treated you and how some people have just said harsh things about you and um, made accusations that are... It, it, it's frustrating to me, and sometimes it angers me, because some, very often it's men who are speaking as if, you know, hey, you're a woman, you need to be quiet or you shouldn't be out there. And I, I know that uh, you get a lot of that and, and you and Timothy have had to think through, you know, how do you, how do you handle that? I mean, because yeah. you're a person and this stuff can affect you, but you're in an arena where it's just everybody's doing it. How, how have you guys thought through that? Yeah, probably only Timothy knows um, how I am affected by certain comments. Certain comments coming from certain people don't hurt as much as others. I'm sure you've experienced that. When it's fellow Christians accusing you and kind of maligning your character in a way that is just unfounded, that hurts more than, you know, someone who is a, you know, secular progressive saying something silly. Um, and so that has been difficult, but not only my husband, but also my dad, who is extremely involved in everything that I do. Honestly, he and Timothy manage 
everything. And there's really no decision that is made or really conversation that is had without both of them. Both of them help me so much in reminding me of who I am, what my identity is, who really matters, what opinions matter, what thoughts matter, and also discerning between real um, constructive criticism, which does happen on social media. You can't dismiss every negative comment that you get or every piece of criticism that you get, and then completely, you know, unfounded slander. And so we just have to stay confident in what we know, how we've navigated life as a family, how Timothy leads our family, how we make our decisions. And again, not to say that we've done any of those things perfectly, um, but the people who you know, make judgments that, oh, because you're out there or because you have strong opinions or because you're talking about politics, you must be some closet feminist. Um, they really just, obviously, they don't know anything about our life or our marriage or anything like that. I don't know what the motivations would be behind something like that, but there's, you really can't, res I, I don't think that you can respond too much to people making accusations that really are unfounded. You can speak to criticism that you might think is constructive, but you can't give people the attention that they're probably seeking. You've said a couple times uh, that you think that the culture war is important, but I've been reliably informed by many trusted Christian leaders that either it's not important or even worse, it's not very spiritual at all and we shouldn't be engaged in it yeah. in any way. So yes, why course. do you think that the culture war is important? Yeah, that's the sophisticated and the educated and the nuanced take is to say that culture wars don't matter. Um, well, the culture war matters because Roe was overturned and has consequently saved tens of thousands of lives. The culture war has tangible effects on people's lives. I like to say that politics matters. Politics matter because policy matters because people matter. Politics affects policy, policy affects people, and we as Christians know better than anyone else that people matter culture is upstream from politics and so our conversations about gender about the family about the uh, about abortion all of those things affect policy policy uh, make or breaks can make or break someone's life um, it has an effect on how people can live people's freedom and literally when it comes to things like abortion their ability to literally physically live um, and so that's why the culture war matters because it affects policy and policy affects people but even beyond that like if policy is downstream from culture culture is downstream as they say, I didn't come up with this, from cult. So from religion, what people think about God, everything is downstream from what people think about God. So even though the Russell Moores or the David Frenches of the world or whomever would say, they, they might say that the culture war is just divisive, it should be on our periphery. Really for us, these issues are not primarily cultural, they're not primarily political, but they're primarily biblical. In fact, they're primarily Genesis 1 issues. When we're talking about the definition of marriage, what constructs a family, uh, the definition of gender, when we're talking about the importance of the abortion issue, we can go back to Genesis 127 and really get the answers for all of those things. So to say that these culture war issues don't matter is basically to say that Genesis 1 means nothing. That to be made in the image of God has no effect on our culture or politics. That God's designation and creation of male and female has no impact on how we think about policy, how we think about gender and these issues today 
today? Of course it does. Of course Genesis 1 matters. That's why the culture war matters. And it's not, uh, it's not theoretical. I mean, this, this is affecting real people's lives. And I think sometimes uh, out of a, a fear of being perceived as a cultural warrior or offending the sensibilities of those who say Christians shouldn't be doing that or speaking in this way on those issues, that very often Christians have just abdicated responsibility. I mean, our, our children are being mutilated and the states are coming against parents who would stand against their children being mutilated. You know, at what point do we finally speak out? If we, if we keep being silent in the face of those kind of things, we won't have an opportunity to speak out ultimately when, uh, when we wake up and say, okay, yeah, it really has gotten bad. It's already bad. And one of the things that I, I think you know, Graham and I talked about and tried to steward our own efforts in this way is helping Christians to realize, look, you are in a war. You, you may not want to be, you may think that you're not going to be, but your enemies know that you're in a war and they're trying to take you out and they've been pretty successful at that. One of the things I've been encouraged with you, Allie, and is uh, seeing some stories periodically of people who've been helped by uh, your podcast or things that you've said. You had a lady on not long ago, right? Could you tell us just a little bit about that or maybe some other story about how folks who started listening to you or started paying attention actually had some real changes in their lives? Yeah, of course, I don't feel that I can take credit for that. It's all by the grace and to the glory of God that there are any testimonies like that um, and that God just uses whoever he wants to use uh, for his purposes. But really, those messages, in addition to what we've already talked about, the foundation of that my family helps, helps set for me, um, messages from people saying, wow, I changed my mind on abortion, or I changed my mind on gender, or wow, I started reading my Bible for the first time, I started going back to church for the first time. Those are the kinds of messages that if I only got hate from here on out on Twitter, that that would make everything worth it. Um, so there was a young woman who reached out to me on Instagram, and I don't always see my Instagram messages, but I'm so glad that I saw this one. She was the uh, she was the person at the center of a recent PragerU documentary about uh, detransition, so-called. Uh, as a teenager, she transitioned to be uh, to try to be a man, to identify as a man, and uh, she reached out to me and she said, you know, I didn't get to talk about my faith. I didn't get to talk about my faith journey when I was um, when I was interviewing with PragerU, but I just wanted you to know that actually while I was still identifying as a man, for some reason, I started listening to your podcast. And she said, I actually started listening to you because she said, I would hate listen to you, which means that I don't know. She wanted to feel some angst and be angry. And she said, I thought you were nutty. That's her word. So she just thought I was this, you know, crazy theocratic person talking about this radical idea of male and female. And so she said that she would listen to it and she would try to listen to my arguments on gender and rebut them in her head. And what she said in her message was like, I kept on getting so frustrated because I couldn't rebut you. And for some reason, I kept on being drawn to your podcast episodes about theology specifically, about Christianity. 
So anyway, she ended up detransitioning um, within that within that year, and now she is married and she's pregnant with her second child, and it's really beautiful. And she came on the show to talk about her testimony and how she how she changed. And um, I'm very thankful and feel just very privileged and honored that God allowed me to play a small part in that story. Of course, there are many other pieces to her testimony in addition to relatable, I'm sure. Um, but it just goes to show like God is going to use whom he wants to use. And um, in simply walking in obedience. And this is another thing that you hear people say a lot is that engaging in the culture war, being divisive or using the wrong tone or whatever it is, talking about these things online, that's never gonna change someone's mind. Talking about abortion like this, being so harsh, being so black and white. And I don't, I don't wanna be harsh or offensive or any of those things, but um, you know, talking about these issues, being conservative, that's gonna turn people off. You're never gonna change someone's mind. But God is in charge of that. He is the one that's in charge of changing hearts and changing minds. And while we should try to be as peaceful and as kind and as compassionate as we possibly can, simply saying what God's word says has incredible power. It has incredible power. I think some people think that by trying to let God off the hook or apologize for God or to try to out love God or out empathy God or out compassion God or out nice God, that that is going to lead more people to the cross than just saying what his word actually says. God doesn't need to be let off the hook. His word doesn't need to be nuanced, doesn't need to be caveated. We don't need to hide portions of the Bible in order to bring people to the cross. That's just not how it works. I think, what's the quote? Truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. It'll defend itself. I certainly didn't come up with that quote. I just can't remember who said it. Um, Spurgeon, there you go. Kind of important person. Um, so... Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what I try to do, obviously, imperfectly. There are certainly things that I've said too harshly or said wrong or whatever. Everyone has, but um, God uses very imperfect people in order to accomplish his purposes, and that makes everything I do, I think, worth it. And that, that story illustrates what you were just saying, that, um, you know, culture is upstream of politics and government and, you know, cults not as a pejorative term, but our upstream of, yeah. of culture. And I've often said that, you know, religion, politics, culture, government, while they are all, all distinct and different things, they do form a matrix which can't really be separated. And there are some people um, that will be reached in the providence of God and can only be reached when they start to hear the truth about cultural things. They begin to, to something, something dawns on them when they hear about God's truth in the world that he's made. And then from there, they're able to, like the salmon, swim upstream into the proper cult, into the pop proper worship and the proper religion. Okay. And it's another thing that, you know, when, when a whole religion kind of builds up that dam at the, at the fountainhead of the river and they don't allow that, that religion to flow into culture and into politics, okay, well, that, the water's going to come from somewhere. Mm. Either it's going to come from the church and the people of God, and they're going to build culture and they're going to build societies and politics and governments, or somebody else is going to. And as you said, Tom, 
you're, you're in a war. They're, you're already in a culture war. And it's not just the Christians who are in a culture war, but those who are not Christians are in a culture war. You're on one side or the other. Uh, but for the Christian, as soon as that heart is changed, as soon as you're regenerated, you switch sides. And so people have to determine which, which side of the war that they're on. Um, and often talking about these cultural issues brings that to light for people. Yeah, and I, it, it's important also to recognize that... Um, Mankind, and therefore our world, is inherently religious. So it's not a question of whether or not we're going to have religion, influence, culture, or politics. The question is, which religion is it going to be? And we have seen what's happened as Christianity has kind of uh, wilted and faded into the background in the face of all of this insanity over the last 50 to 60 years or so here in America. Uh, it's not that America has become less religious it's just switched the influence, influential religion that it has. And call it what you will, uh, self-ism or state-ism, paganism. I mean, you could mix all that together. There's very much a religious influence in our culture today. And so as Christians, you know, we, we think, well, we believe in separation of church and state, and we don't want a church state or state church. All that's fine and good. We can have those conversations. But there is no separation between Christ and state. And politics, you, you can't separate politics from theology. If, if you're doing theology right, you're going to be thinking politically about things, about how you live together and what the responsibilities ought to be in certain contexts of corporate life, governmentally and communally and otherwise, family as well. And God has spoken on that. And we shouldn't be ashamed of it. And when we don't speak on it, then it's like we're just kind of fanning the flames for these pagan ideas to take over and dominate. And that's, that's where we are today. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think classical liberalism, even though it has its strengths, it does kind of delude people into thinking that our rights can come from somewhere besides God. Or that it, there's something that we can just kind of take for granted, that, there, that this idea of objective morality, right and wrong, virtue, responsibility, self-governance, um, inherent human rights, that all of those are still going to exist in a post-Christian nation when they, they won't. The founders knew that, and I know there's debate about whether or not the founders were pluralist, but really if you go back to a lot of the founding documents, not just of our country, but also of the states themselves, they were extremely explicit that uh, they were founded upon Christian principles, specifically Protestant principles. Um, and so this idea that we have now formulated now that we can get all of the benefits of liberalism, we can get all the benefits of Western civilization and abandon the foundation, it just, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And that is actually why I would say, if you want to call it conservatism, whatever you want to call it, our side of the political aisle, it's much more difficult to get things done than it is on the progressive side, because when you're just trying to destroy it's really easy. Everyone can have their own tool. You can have your bulldozer, you can have your hammer, whatever it is. You're just trying to destruct, uh, destroy all of the edifices that exist, all the institutions that you think are bad and systemically corrupt and all of that. That's easy to do. You don't have to agree. But when you're on our side and we're trying to build something, well, everyone has to use the same 
the same general materials. Everyone has to use or agree upon the same tools. We have to have the same foundation. So that's the problem that we have on the political right is that now we don't agree on the foundation. You've got people on our side politically who think that you can get all of this without God who don't agree on where truth comes from, where morality comes from. Secular conservatism is really a fantasy that they think that they're going to be able to have once they shut out the theocratic Christians from their side, but um, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, I've said to uh, some secular uh, atheists who are uh, conservative, who are concerned about wanting, uh, some of us wanting Christianity to have greater influence in the culture, is you better hope Christianity has a better influence in the culture because you will not have any place to stand or live. And it's going to be whoever's the strongest is going to dominate. And uh, these guys have, it's like they've got their feet firmly planted in thin air. You know, they, they think that they can live the way that we've lived without the biblical foundations, which are inevitable in this country. We've, we've talked about this. I, you know, Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He wasn't a Christian. He made his own New Testament, cut out all the miracles. But I would say, give me those kind of deists today. You know, I'll take Thomas Jefferson kind of deists in our day over what we've got in the name of some Christians, quite honestly, uh, who have a fear of God, a recognition of God in some sense. Now, I'm not calling them Christian. I'm not saying we're going to start a church together. But that kind of atmosphere was created out of the, the flames of revival that God gave to the colonies that helped us to be thinking rightly about these uh, metaphysical realities that were there in the mix whenever the nation was formed. And we've lost that. I think right now would be a good time for a book recommendation. I don't know if we have this for sale in the bookstore. David Hall. I don't know. But if not, you ought to get Does it. Does America Have a Christian Founding is, a, is an excellent book by, by David Hall and would recommend that you read that. And I think he just came out with a sequel as well. Did he? Or it's about to come out. Oh, Look it up. Yeah, that's a great book. And, and uh, one of the things I learned in that book is Thomas Jefferson was on the committee to come up with the national seal. You know, what will be our seal? And uh, his proposal was uh, a seal that described, had a picture of Pharaoh driving his chariot through the Red Sea and the waters crashing down over him. I'm thinking, that's my kind of deist, you know? I mean, <laughs> I like that. We could go a long way with a guy like that. Well, he points out a lot of uh, helpful uh, history there. You know, for instance, though the federal government did not try to mandate a, a church or a state church or anything like that, they did leave it to the states. And the states had the right to do that. And all the states, and what you can argue whether this is right or wrong, that's fine. But they all did actually have religious tests to be able to serve in the state legislatures. And it wasn't until uh, finally uh, in, I think it was North Carolina, against the constitution of the state, a Jewish man entered into the legislature. And then they ended up changing the constitution of the state. But that was the first time in, in the history of our nation. Yeah, yeah so Christianity, if, if we're going to be faithful Christians, and we're going to have to be willing to address these issues. That doesn't mean everybody needs to start a podcast and address them the way that you do or the way we try to do on Sword and Trial. But it does mean in whatever sphere you're in, you, you need to be thinking Christianly. And you need to do that as a, a single man or a single woman or a wife or a mother or a grandmother, uh, whether you're an employee, an employer, retired, whatever it is, God's given you some spheres of opportunity. And you need to be taking advantage of the opportunities in your spheres 
as Christians, to think Christianly, to help other people think Christianly, to speak in ways that are accurate and helpful against what is evil, what is wrong, and for that which is good and right and true and beautiful. If we don't do it, it's not going to get done. And I do think that is part of our calling to steward what God's given us in this world. And so, you know, you don't, you don't have to be uh, Ali Beth Stuckey to make a difference in your world. And praise God for how God's positioned you and given you the opportunity and the uh, ability to speak to issues the way that you do. But there are a lot of women here who are raising little kids the way you are, and they're not ever going to pick up a microphone on a podcast. So what would you say to women like you who aren't going to be doing what you're doing, who might look at you and think, man, she's really making a difference. I can't, and you know, I just, all I do is change diapers. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, I change a lot of diapers too. So (laughs) I understand that. That's why we have, and this is, um, part of, part of the phrase was from Elizabeth Elliot and we've added on to it. And I said it earlier is do the next right thing in faith with excellence and for the glory of God. Many times, that is changing a diaper. Many times that is washing dishes. Many times that is making a meal with joy or it's sending an email with excellent communication. It's doing something with a good attitude. It's helping your neighbor. It's serving in church. It's having a really difficult conversation. Or maybe it is something with a bigger platform. Maybe even if your kids don't attend there, you are going to a school board meeting because you're invested in that community and you care you care about what the kids are learning there. Um, maybe you are volunteering with your local pregnancy center or God has given you a platform to speak on those things. Maybe your mission field is not only your kids' family, but also maybe it's your extended family. Uh, maybe it's your community. Maybe it's your neighbors. All of those conversations matter. I am not only having conversations with people on my podcast, but there's a lot of people in my life who are trying to navigate culture and politics that I have a lot of private personal conversations with them all of the time. Um, And that is not, so that's not just something that I have to do because I don't need a microphone to do it, but that's something that all of us can do. Because what I found is that so many people, especially young women, they're craving clarity. They're craving clarity. I know that we like to hear that, oh no, they don't want to hear about, uh, you know, about gender. They don't want to hear about abortion. That's just all too controversial. What I say is that, look, they're looking to hear what God's word says about those things if they are not hearing them from their fellow Christians, from the older women in their church, from their pastors. They are going to TikTok, which is the wild, wild west of stupidity. And so rather than hearing what their pastor has to say about abortion, he should be talking about these things, they're going to TikTok and they're listening to Sally Influencer who said, well, actually the word homosexuality was added in the Bible in 1946, and so it doesn't really matter. And they're thinking, oh, well, that must be right. My pastor's never really talked about it, and so I guess that's okay to believe that. Before you know it, they've deconstructed and started some liberal podcast that is ruining lives. And so it is really important for people within the church to be having these conversations with the people in our lives. And just remember that 
Clarity is a gift. Clarity is a gift that you give your children, that you can give your friends, that you can give your church members as you help them navigate these very complex issues that a lot of people are too scared to wade into because they've been told the culture war doesn't matter, because they've been told that politics are too divisive, because they don't believe... Uh, they don't believe in what Martin Luther said, that it's peace if possible, truth at all costs. They really just don't want to cause waves. Um, so you can be that person in whatever tiny speck that God has providentially placed you on. He has done so not arbitrarily or accidentally, but purposely and has planned every second, every day of your life before time even came to be. And so um, just remember that, that you are not here spontaneously or by accident, but he has placed you when and where he has for a specific purpose. And that is to do the next right thing for his glory. You know, Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that we're both salt and we're, we're light, and he's talking about our relationship as the church to the world. Uh, and many people have made a lot about what, what does it mean to be salt in the world? And one thing I think R.C. Sproul is helpful in pointing this out, salt is a preservative, and he talks about the ways in which the Christian church has been able to preserve this world, been able to preserve this uh, culture through the, uh, the building of universities and hospitals and orphanages. Those are things that the church has done. But Jesus also says that you are the light of the world. Um, and the light, I think, is a reference to speaking the truth, like you said, but it's, it's more than just speaking the truth because it's they will see your good works and praise your Father who is in heaven. So when you think about how we are to relate to the world, be that salt to, to be able to be a preservative here and to, to add uh, savor to the world, but also be that light in the things that you say, like you just said, but then also the things that you do, uh, which is the, the things that you do and even the small, most mundane things that you do are never insignificant, but they actually have an eternal value. So um, as I've said, you know, driving home from work when your mind is a million miles away and you don't think about the fact that you have to turn your blinker on and turn down the street to get home, you just go into autopilot, the most mundane thing in the world. God has placed you there for that reason to be a light to the world. Um, in the changing of diapers, the most mundane, sometimes one of the most disgusting things in the world that you do. Uh, in those good works, even your children can see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. Yeah, that's true. It's, uh, we're called upon to do whatever we do to the glory of God, uh, which means if you're going to do something, you better figure out how to do it to the glory of God. And what you said with excellence and with a, a view to that end is right. So all of the things that we are engaged in, there, there's never a checking out for Christians. You know, you, you can retire from your normal work, but that doesn't mean that you've retired from being a Christian. You know, you now have opportunities to do what you weren't able to do before, and you steward that. And you may go on vacation so that you don't have your normal routines day in and day out, but you don't stop being a Christian on vacation. It's just thinking about the world in terms of, okay, God has put me here. He has made me a disciple of the Lord Jesus. He has given me truth. I'm living in a world of lies there are people all around us that need the truth. How can we steward the opportunities we have for God's glory to commend that? And I, I do think that as Reformed people, one of the areas that we need to recover uh, is uh, what's called either the, the, usually the second use of the law. You know, the God's law, the Ten Commandments, still obtain for us. They're no longer a covenant that we try to look to to climb up as a ladder to get to God. 
but they are a rule of life for us. They tell us what God requires. They define righteousness for us. So Christians ought to look to it that way. And the law of God certainly does teach us our sin. And so it convicts us and we preach the law of God so that we can show here's what God requires. Here's what you cannot provide that you're obligated to provide. And you need a savior from the condemning effects of lawlessness. But that second use of the law, that the law of God restrains sin in the world. It has a pedagogical effect by saying, here's what's right, here's what's wrong. And I think as, as Reformed Christians, we need to come back to a, a more rigorous understanding of that use of the law so that when we're advocating for righteous laws, we're not doing it trying to uh, just be engaged in a morality play. We're doing it trying to teach our world, our culture, what's right and what's wrong. And whenever we say these things and we stand for these things, we know that nobody's going to be saved by keeping the law, but we also know that people can be instructed by keeping the law. They can learn from righteous laws, and we shouldn't hesitate to affirm God's law in those ways. Well, Allie, um, we want to wrap this up, but you're a girl mom. I am. Yep, so you got three girls. Uh, what do you aspire for your daughters, and, um, and what would you say to some teenage girls today who really are thinking seriously about their lives, thinking about uh, Christianity? What would you say? What do you want for your daughters, and what would you say to those girls? My main prayer for my kids before my oldest was born, my, the, the thing that I pray most consistently is that they would be wise, that they would just be wise. I see so much silliness, such a lack of discernment in the world, especially among young people, and I'm sure we were all there at one point, um, but that my girls would be wise. And of course, that flows under having a fear of the Lord, since a fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So that is understood, that of course, we want them to follow after Christ with their whole hearts, and for that to be their joy, for that to be their strength, their steadiness, their foundation, their whole pursuit, of course, to be the glory of the Lord. And from that, that they would be able to discern complicated issues, tough decisions with peaceful wisdom. I would say that is the thing that is lacking today the most. I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, we could go down the list of the things lacking in our culture today. Certainly courage is another one of those, but such a lack of wisdom, even among professing Christians. And so that's, I just... I just pray that they would pursue wisdom, of course, through scripture, um, but also I, I want them to be smart. I want them to be able to use their mind. I want them to be reasonable. I want them to be able to rebut the arguments that the world gives to them because that's something that I see so much is the reliance on emotions, which are not in themselves bad, but alone cannot lead us. We hear all the time that, uh, your feelings are valid. They're not all valid. Some of them are very invalid <laughs> um, because they're not grounded in reality. And so um, as women, I want them to be able to wade through these very turbulent waters of all our culture with 
peaceful wisdom. And so what I would tell uh, teenage girls, I mean, I was, a, even though I was raised a Christian, it wasn't until I was about 17 years old that I really started to take theology seriously, um, that I started to read uh, people like C.S. Lewis and like Spurgeon and uh, like other interesting theologians at the time. And then in college, someone gifted me with an ESV study Bible, which completely changed my life. And that's what I would tell teenage girls to start doing right now. Pursue wisdom, pursue biblical knowledge. Don't be afraid of it. I know that so many of your friends are just atrophying their brains by scrolling through TikTok um, constantly. I actually feel like I am dumber than I was in when I was a teenager because of like what social media does to your mind. Rather than spending your time doing those things which really do atrophy your brain, um, pursue wisdom, pursue knowledge, and allow yourself to be so far ahead of your peers theologically, even though that can be uncomfortable, you will be set up very well as you navigate the very turbulent waters of adulthood with that foundation. Wonderful. So you're going to be doing a breakout session tomorrow for women uh, yes. here at the conference, and so you'll want to make sure you attend that if you're a woman. Uh, if you're a man, sorry, you cannot uh, welcome you there. We yes. will not let you no, in. No, we won't. We'll kick Even you if you identify as one. <laughs> <laughs> if you identify as one, see me afterwards, okay? Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but Allie, thank you so much for thank joining you. us uh, tonight on Sword and Trial. Graham, why don't you pray for Allie and Timothy and... Uh, just ask the Lord to watch over them and, and bless them. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been so good to us and you have given us so many gifts. We thank you for this conference and we thank you for this evening and this conversation that we have had. Pray for the Stuckies, uh, that you would enable them to continue to do all that they can for your glory to, with excellence. Uh, be with us tonight as we finish out this conference today and be with us for the rest of the weekend. Give us your blessings in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Sword and the Trowel today. Uh, if this episode has been helpful to you or if any of the resources that Founders Ministries puts out is helpful, and there are many resources if you go to founders.org, uh, we'd love for you to come alongside us to support us in our ministry and in our endeavors. Uh, the Lord's been kind to us and faithful to us and in allowing us to do so many things from our publishing to our podcasts to our theological journals and conferences and many other things. Uh, but if the Lord is calling you to come alongside us and support us in this, we'd ask you to go to founders.org and you can go Go to the Give tab there and support us financially. Uh, we thank the Lord for your gift.